Hi there, this is Rich Cooper with the Space Foundation, and this is the Space for You podcast, a podcast with the conversations with today's leaders in the space community and that make today's space adventures possible. I'm joined today by Sean Cochran, a senior manager for civil and environmental space and Raytheon's space systems, which is a mission area within Raytheon space and airborne systems. He's responsible for cross-business collaboration within Raytheon and develops a variety of capabilities, including air and missile defense, land, sea-based radars, and various systems, including command control and communications, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Prior to joining Space Systems, Mr. Cochran was the chief scientist for the Joint Polar Satellite System, the Common Ground System, and the head of the Mission Data Services Program for Raytheon's Intelligence, Information, and Services. Prior to that, Sean was the head of Systems Engineering and Operations for the United States Missile Defense Agency's Integration and Operations Center at Schriever Air Force Base in Colorado. Sean, you sound like a guy who's got a lot on his plate, but I got to ask. You know, it's been a great career. It's been a great career. That's obvious. You've been a mover and shaker there. But the thing that stands out to me is that you've got a lot of big words in there. Let me ask you. What do you really do at Raytheon? So, you know, it, it's been kind of consistent throughout my career that what I've actually done is sort of a systems of systems integration piece where I'm brought in and, and you, you have a challenging problem and you're trying to figure out how to solve it. And sometimes you can't afford to be able to go and do the procurement of all of the pieces by yourself. So you try to pull together elements from different providers or different elements of different capabilities and create that overarching capability that you need. That's kind of where my sweet spot is, is systems of systems integration. So in a systems of systems integration, explain that. For people who may not be familiar with that, Are you? what does that mean? Are you pulling all the threads and knitting them all together into one piece of fabric? It usually is, but sometimes it's, it's helping the people that are already participating in the effort realize that they have capabilities that can be leveraged in other areas. So there's some liaising that's done between different governmental organizations, even within business units, and sometimes it's just stepping back and, and not being in that stovepipe of excellence, kind of looking at all the stovepipes and determining we can do things if we just find ways to pull the elements out of all the capabilities that are already there. It's the ability to start the narrative and pull people into a cohesive solution that has been part of my career. So when you talk about bringing all those solutions together, and that's part of your career, we just went through celebrating the Apollo 11 anniversary. I've got to ask you, with everything that Raytheon is doing today, do you know anything about Raytheon's heritage with the Apollo missions? Absolutely. You know, and what a perfect example to bring up. You're talking about the level of effort that was conducted over a nine-year period, maybe really a ten-year period, to put the first two humans on the moon. And it wasn't just a couple people there. Everybody that worked in the entire spectrum was part of being on the moon at that point, from the executives that made decisions inside of companies to the leadership inside of the governmental organizations to Congress pulling together the funding, even down to people like the, the secretaries and the janitorial staff that kept the machine churning. Every single role had a part in making sure we were successfully able to execute that mission. For Raytheon, one of the key elements that we had was we built the Apollo guidance computer. So that was the computer that was on board the spacecraft that allowed them to navigate to the moon from the Earth. So let me ask you, 
from your experience, that's Raytheon's heritage. What's your heritage? What got you into the space business? <laughs> Thanks for asking that question. It was, it was sort of by accident. I had been largely in commercial and civil side of the house, and I had a, a Raytheon employee convince me in 2004 to come to work for Raytheon, and it, it landed me at Shreveport Air Force Base working for the United States Missile Defense Agency. So that was kind of my first foray in working with space. And it wasn't my first command and control type of element, but it was the first time I was doing things that were directly related to command and control of space elements. And it's interesting to note, in each one of those roles that we talked about, or you, you gave such an elegant briefing on it at the opening, those were sort of the end state. When I came on board with the Missile Defense Agency, I was just a systems engineer. And I wound up being the guy in charge of system engineering for operations at NDA. When I came on board with the Joint Polar Satellite System, I was just running Mission Data Services. When I ended up, I ended up as the chief scientist. So there's been an opportunity for me to progress and grow in each one of those challenges. So you've described yourself as a scientist. What is your role as a scientist with space today? And how do you take those experiences and apply them to life here on Earth? I've been leveraging a lot of what I did for the Joint Polar Satellite System Common Ground System, which is the Earth science exploitation of all of the satellites that are part of that constellation, and finding new and unique ways to be able to exploit that. Because largely they were built for weather missions, but there's ways to use that data to help in other areas. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I'm sure we're going to talk about today is the Beards instrument, which is sort of breathtaking capability for a, a weather satellite or for an instrument on a weather satellite in what it can do. And there's been things that have been teased out of the data produced by the Beards instrument that it wasn't really ever intended to do, but it's had really great positive consequences. Now, you talked about Veers there, and I do want to get into that. And again, you can't do anything in the space or the military environment and not have it be an acronym. So let me spell this out for our listeners. Veers is the Visible Infrared Imaging Radiometer Suite. That's right. That's, that's one of the key instruments flying on board the SUMI National Polar Orbiting Partnership Satellite, which is uh, known as SUMI MPP. Uh, it was launched in 2011. There's also a Beers flying on board uh, NOAA-20, but at launch it was known as JPSS-1, and we did that launch in November of 2017. What does Veers do? It, it's an it's a operational space sensor that enables us to do environmental monitoring and numerical weather forecasting, and it provides sensor data records that are used to tell us what's happening on the Earth. For instance, if it's telling us that things are happening on the Earth, is this just basically a super weather satellite, or can it model uh, what may happen? It's a super weather satellite. Okay. To put things into context, I want to start off with what the whole goal of observing the Earth is, right? The goal of observing the Earth is to understand what's happening on our Earth system. Sometimes that's done during the day, sometimes that's done at night. But we've been doing that largely since about the 60s. In fact, the father of satellite meteorology is a guy named Werner Sumi, which we named Sumi MPP after when we flew that first Beers instrument as a, as a tribute to, to Dr. Sumi at the University of Wisconsin. These satellites have been getting more and more mature over time as technology has advanced. 
And the, the newest sensor that's on, on orbit for doing these Earth-observing capabilities and missions is the Beers instrument. And the Beers instrument can do things like tell us what's going on with clouds or sea surface temperatures or ocean colors or polar winds or vegetative fractions or aerosols or fire, snow, ice, vegetation. There's all kinds of applications because there's all kinds of things on the Earth we're interested in. So it's not just a weather satellite meaning, you know, something that tells you whether it's specific in a point of time. It's raining, it's cold, it's hot. It's something we can use to trend over time, which is more of a climate record. But it also does things that aren't necessarily related to weather. It's related to the effects of the weather, like the greening of the Earth. When you're looking at the, the vegetative fraction, you're able to see how much the Earth has greened over time based upon temperature and moisture conditions. So who uses a system like this? Obviously meteorologists, but when you think of a Veers customer, who are people that are regularly using this type of instrument? So obviously the National Weather Service is the first downstream consumer of the data from Veers. In fact, Raytheon kind of goes from photons to forecaster when you think about it. We make the sensor itself that's on board the spacecraft. We have the ground system that grabs the data from the spacecraft. We have the data processing segment that produces the science data records and environmental data records that are from the observations from the spacecraft. We even have the AWIPS console that the National Weather Service forecasters are sitting there building their forecasts on. So we really understand that environmental chain from observation to forecaster, kind of pulling the information out and extracting it into the individual buckets. So if you're a National Weather Service forecaster, you're trying to take these Earth's observations and produce weather forecast. But if you're the National Park Service under the Department of Interior, you might be using green vegetative products to understand what the health of the forest is. So you can understand maybe what beetle kill is or where you have a sense of dryness that could be at risk for forest fires. In fact, the Beers sensor has a specific band called the M13 channel, it's a moderate resolution channel that's designed to detect fires. It's called the active fires channel. And so the satellite can see a forest fire that might have been started by lightning before usually a human can see it through the smoke. When you talk about these channels, so you mentioned that there's a fire channel. I assume that it probably has a hurricane channel? So the answer to that is there's 22 imaging and radiometric bands that are part of beers. They start at wavelengths from down at 0.41 microns all the way out to 12.5 microns. And those, those spectral channels that you're looking allow you to see different things uh, in land features and cloud features and atmospheric features. And absolutely, the blending of some of those spectral channels let us do things with tropical cyclones that are sort of breathtaking. In fact, we've seen dramatic improvement in our ability to predict and monitor what's going on with tropical cyclones because of the observations we're taking from these low-Earth orbiting weather satellites. VIRS has directly contributed to improving that forecast. I got a quote from the National Weather Service from the National Hurricane Center at one point in time. They said, we now know seven days in advance what we used to only know 72 hours in advance. So we're getting better forecast models and better heads up as to what's happening with storms as they're growing and maturing, and it lets us have better fidelity and prediction where they're going to make landfall, which helps us protect resources, helps us put the right resources into place for emergency management, helps us get people out of harm's way, and literally saves lives. 
We've had a lot of storms over the past several years. Obviously, you think of things like Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria, as well as the the legendary ones of Katrina and Rita. What would you say, since Veers has been up and on station and operating, what has been Veers' biggest success story? Well, that's it, it, it depends on which ones you're looking for, right? Each consumer has their own view of success. Uh, certainly, uh, being able to do a better job of predicting and monitoring tropical cyclones through their formation to their impact on land has been a, a, a dramatic thing from a technology perspective because we are able to help uh, emergency first responders and local and state and federal governments understand uh, what that critical path is going to look like and help them position resources sooner to be able to respond to the impacts that are, that are certainly out to come. But again, the lens changes based upon who you are. I would say that if you're in the Forest Service and you have a, a detection from beers of a fire that's in a heavily wooded forest area that you can't normally get to, the unique part is that each one of the pixels inside those pictures from beers are geolocated. So now you're able to send fire resources, whether it's dropped from an airplane or smoke jumpers onto the ground, directly to where the fire is without having to kind of sort through the smoke to find it. And because we have two of them on orbit and we get a second pass over the scene 50 minutes later, now you can get kind of a gross sense of fire propagation and smoke propagation. So one impact for Forest Service would be understanding where to put the fire resources to get on the front line of the fire and stop the fire. The second one might be for civil resources because now we can see how that smoke is propagating. And a lot of times things like soot and ash and airborne aerosols that, that would impact quality of life, quality of breathing, may not be visible to the eye, but the Beers cloud chain can map that. And so now you may be able to tell an urban area, hey, you're going to have a problem with air quality over your region in a day because of this forest fire that's a thousand miles away. And we're watching that certain particulate get carried through the air to your area. So it helps local first responders deal with air quality issues in their city as well. So when you mentioned about the air quality and the soot, the first thing I thought of was the various volcanic eruptions that have occurred and that we've seen on the news and obviously create some air quality issues. I assume Veers can help there as well? Absolutely. Not only can we see the, you know, the visible smoke, but again, there's a, a quality metric that goes into understanding the, the aerosols around it. And so sometimes what you can't see with the eye doesn't mean that there isn't something ablative or dangerous in the atmosphere. So that could be used to help route aircraft around uh, areas where they could go with, into a flight regime that could have something that could damage engines or optics. It certainly helps with air quality at all levels because the, the Beers instrument's not just looking at the upper atmosphere, it's also looking down at the surface, at land surface features. So there's a lot of things that could be tailored out of those observations to help different organizations respond to a thing like a volcanic eruption in different ways. I'm going to move from land to sea here uh, as to how Veers may work. And I have to confess, I'm a big fan of Discovery Channel's Deadliest Catch show with the crab fishermen who are out there in the Bering Sea enduring just tremendous challenges on the water. And I read an article that talked about how the Veer system was actually used to help a crab fishing boat that was operating in those waters 
and actually helped save the crew and what was going on. Can you share that story? Absolutely. The uh, vessel was called the Kiska Sea, and they were trying to retrieve some of their crab pots in an area that was kind of dense ice pack. And they got lost, and it was uh, starting to impact the vessel. So they radioed the Coast Guard with a Mayday. And the Mayday uh, was able to work through Alaska National Weather Service and eventually the National Ice Desk at Suitland, Maryland, to put together a plan of, of how to help that vessel. And they used a particular channel from, from the Beers Instrument called the Day-Night Band, which lets us see at night as if it was daytime. And we were able to see the crab boats at night in the ice flows. And as I referenced earlier, each pixel in our images is geolocated. So they were able to draw a line through the clear in the ice, knowing the geocoordinates of each one of those turns and have that radio back to the vessel so they could navigate to those coordinates and navigate safely out of the dense ice pack and save the mariners. And you would think that that would be such a great success story standing on its own. But what you may not know is it's actually happened twice. We had a sailboat that got lost in dense ice up uh, north of Barrow, Alaska, and they used the same scenario. It was about 12 months later where they called in the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard made a uh, turned into looking at a night band product, and we were able to get them out of that dense pack ice into the shore fast ice and eventually into the open ocean. So it's obviously a super weather satellite. It has helped in certainly the Coast Guard and other maritime response operations. Is there anything else that Veers is doing that is changing life here on Earth? You know, it's, it's the art of the possible. We don't know until we start to explore, right? It, it was certainly never designed for a search and rescue mission, although it's been employed in two search and rescue efforts. So that's what we do in the science community, is we're opening up the aperture and trying to find what are the problems that you have and are there things that we can solve using the Veers instrument to look at that. One of the things that is used, and there's actually a uh, daily product that comes out from NOAA, is about harmful algal blooms. Harmful algal blooms can do things like kill fish, uh, because the algae eats up all the oxygen in there, but it can also impact drinking water. So there's a daily harmful algal bloom product that's produced by NOAA from the Beers Instrument to help people understand what the impacts could be to them. And that could, again, be, it could be fisheries, or it could be people trying to get uh, a drink of tap water. So the question becomes for me, what are the observations that we need to have that are part of a problem set, and can we apply beers to help solve that problem? When you talk about problem sets, if you were to have an opportunity to sit down with, say, the FEMA administrator, or for that matter, any major emergency management leader, I'm going to ask you to complete this sentence. Veers can help you serve the public by blank. I'll let you fill in the rest of the sentence. So, so they, <laughs> they, we're gonna, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to pick one leader for me to talk to. So I'm gonna start off with FEMA, uh, and this is an easy one. Veers can help you by better predicting tropical cyclones and where they're gonna make landfall and what that impact is gonna be. If it was the National Forest Service, say Veers can do that by helping you identify where the fires are and helping you with chain fire propagation. The thing that sometimes exists, and I'm not sure if it's been stitched together as a as a full answer is, what are the waterfall effects of things that we see? And I'm going to explain that in terms of a particular product. Veers can do breathtaking things measuring clouds. And one of the products that can fall out of it is something called total precipitable water. 
So when we look at a cloud, we can measure this cloud volume, and by using total precipitable water, we can tell you how much water will rain out of a cloud. If you take that, and simultaneously you're able to do a soil moisture content at the ground, you're able to determine about how much, what that saturation point of the soil is, and then you'd be able to estimate how much runoff you would have. If you look at the tributaries that that runoff would run into, and you look at the height of those tributaries, you should be able to figure out about when flood stage is going to be and how much water is going to wind up going downstream. So postulate this for a moment, if you will. If we were to get the right people together and pull the right data set together, you should be able to look at a big storm system happening in Oklahoma and figure out how much water is going to run off of the land into the tributaries that will wind up going into the Mississippi that could impact the flood stage in New Orleans, Louisiana, three days later. That would be breathtaking for emergency first responders and for the government in the city of New Orleans to be able to understand three days in advance that a storm in Tulsa, Oklahoma is going to cause them to have a need to open the floodgates and let more water out into the Delta. That's a powerful, powerful tool that an emergency management leader, in particular at FEMA, could use. Let me ask you, has Veers explored any opportunities with the insurance community as to how a tool like this might be able to help them address risk? That, that's a great question, and I would be surprised if there weren't models that were already being used to ingest this data and, and do that specifically for insurance companies. What I can tell you is, is that the Raytheon company was paid by the United States government to go and build the sensor and do the algorithms and build the ground to produce the products that are given to NOAA and that are freely distributed from NOAA. How they're employed beyond that, if somebody wants to you know, commercialize that and turn it into something that, that is tailored for uh, an insurance company, we wouldn't have visibility into, but it kind of makes me proud that they're doing that. What's something else that Veers is doing that people would be surprised to learn? Because I have to tell you, what you've shared has already been surprising to me as to its capabilities, but there's always one or two other sort of features that sometimes can get overlooked. What would one or two of those other features that Veers has that people ought to know about? Well, I mean, we could talk about normalized differential vegetative indexes, right, NDVI. So a vegetative index is, is, is looking at the greening of the earth in space. And if you started in the spring and you monitored it to the fall, you should be able to understand how the earth greened by just simply looking at it. You can see it go from sort of a pale tan to you know, or brown into the light green into the dark green as, as plants go through their normal cycle and start to mature. Where that becomes interesting is you start to do things like estimating the crop yields. So, for instance, this is, this is a hypothetical situation. Let's say that we had a vested interest in the crop yield of a foreign nation to make sure that they had enough rice produced to be able to feed their citizens. We could watch the greening of the earth over their area over time and kind of estimate what their crop yield is going to be based upon the greening of the crops. And if we notice that year over year, they've been doing pretty good, but this particular season, it doesn't look like it's as green, and it looks like we're going to have a low yield, that means that they could have issues with feeding their citizens or maybe issues with famine. And maybe that's why we want to send resources to try to help that nation bridge that gap. That's one example. So what's next for Veers? How long does this system have? What's its forecast life, and what do you do after it? 
So, so the funny part is, is that in a very gross sense, Raytheon sensors are far exceeding their design life. We're generally getting about two and a half times the design life out of the sensors that they were that they were originally acquired by the government to do. So it's, it's been a pretty good value for the government. The predecessor instrument to Beers was called MODIS, and we still had two of those on orbit, and they're still working perfectly on Aqua and Terra doing their mission. Like I said, the SMPP instrument Beers went up in 2011. Uh, the J1 Nanora 20 instrument went up in 2017. Uh, we have fully manufactured the J2 instrument. It's been delivered, but it's being stored at our facility in El Segundo, California, for delivery to the J2 spacecraft to be launched. And we're in production on the J3 and J4 beers now. So NOAA has already put in plan the ability to have five beers instruments over that period of time, but we are building and launching to their schedule. We could maybe get some additional benefit by flying even more beers and changing the orbit plane. So instead of doing our early afternoon orbit, uh, 1.30, maybe there's an opportunity to fly beers at the 9.30 orbit. So we take a, a mid-morning observation followed by a mid-afternoon observation. The more observations you have, the higher fidelity the inputs to the numerical weather prediction models. So could VIRS end up becoming a suite of small sats? I would say that Moore's Law applies everywhere, and Raytheon is investing in technologies for the next generation of years, and we're working on it diligently inside the company. And when we get the call for that new capabilities, we'll be ready to answer it. You talked about multiple channels that Veers has operated on, and I'm going to ask you to sort of pull out your crystal ball and take a look here at the future, but where do you see the future of space-based Earth observation? I think that ideally what people want to get to, especially uh, people like forecasters, is lower latency on observations. So the short and sweet answer to that would be the, the faster you can make an observation with higher fidelity and get it down, the happier everybody's going to be. And the only way to do that is to by have a constellation of satellites performing those observations. Or have the ability to bring that data down nearly continuously rather than waiting for us to make contact with the ground stations. And, and just to bring the 22 channels in the context of the, of the contact with the ground stations, the 22 rate, imaging and radiometric bands, I, I told you about the wavelengths, but basically those go visible wavelengths to short wave, medium wave, and long wave infrared. So it's covering a lot of different spectrums. And all those observations are stored on board the spacecraft and every time we make contact with a ground station, we take the data that's stored from those observations and we send it down to the ground. Our primary ground station is at Svalbard, Norway. It's way up north in the Arctic Circle. In fact, at the Svalbard ground station, you're closer to the North Pole at Svalbard than you are to the South Pole at McMurdo. That's how far north it is. So the satellite goes around the Earth from the North Pole to the South Pole and back to the North Pole about once every 101 minutes. And each time it's flying around the Earth, it's looking at the Earth and imaging it 3,000 kilometers from side to side, taking those observations, storing them on board, and then when it gets into contact with the ground station at Svalbard, Norway, it downloads that data, a first and second copy, and that data goes across the network to the NOAA Satellite Operations Facility at Suitland, Maryland. There, the raw data records from the satellite are turned into science data records and then environmental data records that are then distributed to National Weather Service, UMATSAT, 
JAXA and Department of Defense. You said early on in this conversation that you were a scientist and not an engineer, so I'm going to ask the loaded question here. Is it better to be a scientist or is it better to be an engineer? It's better to be uh, a scientist with a background in engineering. Wow. Because <laughs> I was going to say, that, that that's splitting the, the hairs there. That's good. So it, it, in fairness, my, my background is aerospace engineering, but I got captivated by the art of the possible. And in science, there's no failures. They're just outcomes. So the opportunity is to go out there and explore the art of the possible. And even if we don't get the result we wanted, we learn from it. And that's kind of been what we've been doing with all of the data products that come out of the Beers instrument. It was sort of the art of the unknown. We knew what we were going to measure in, and we knew what those basic earth observing products were going to be. But the things that we've been able to matriculate out of those have been kind of breathtaking. I want to pull that thread of the art of the possible with the last question that I've got here for you. And again, your career, you've been at a lot of different places and you've talked about some of that discovery here. You've found a lot of challenging and rewarding projects. I'd like to know what is the biggest takeaway from your career that you would want future space pioneers like yourself to know as they start their career? What's the best advice you can give to them on that space journey? Ask for help. Never be afraid. If you are if you are in a situation where you are feeling challenged and you're afraid that you don't know what you're doing or you feel like you don't have a clear vision for where you're going, ask for help. Mentorship is a really critical chain item. And I assure you, the people you work for want to see you succeed. Don't ever be ashamed to raise your hand and say, I need guidance or I need help with this. I've done that my entire career, and I have literally been pulled up by the people I've worked for. Sean, that is great advice. That's really powerful, and it's obvious that the people that you've worked with have invested in you, as has Raytheon, and we're the beneficiaries of a tool like Veers that can literally save lives and help prepare communities in a lot of different ways for any types of uh, natural emergencies that may come their way, as well as keeping an eye on the health of the Earth. Sean, I want to thank you for your time. Very grateful for what you and the Raytheon company do. Uh, not only in space, but for how you take that space work and apply it to lives here on Earth. We're very, very grateful for that. So thank you. It's certainly been my pleasure. It it has been a pleasure to chat with you today. Uh, That concludes this episode of Space for You with Sean Cochran of Raytheon. Please pay attention to the Space Foundation website at spacefoundation.org, as well as all of our social media properties for A lot of activities that we've got coming up that continue the celebration of Apollo, but continue the celebration for what is happening in today's space renaissance. Because at the Space Foundation, we've always got space for you. Thank you for listening. Mm